Well, hello, uh, Eric Topol with Ground Truce, and I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk with Jonathan Howard today, who is a neurologist and psychiatrist uh, at NYU and Bellevue, and has written quite an amazing book published earlier uh, months ago in 2023. We want them infected. So welcome, Jonathan. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about because we're still in the throes of the pandemic with this current wave that's at least by wastewater levels and no reason to think it isn't by infections, at least the second largest in the pandemic uh, course. Um, And I guess I want to start off first with you being uh, into the neuropsychiatric world. How did you become, uh, obviously caring for patients with COVID, but how did you decide to become a a COVIDologist? Well... You know, I started, I developed a a strong interest in the anti-vaccine movement of all things about a decade ago when a doctor who I trained with here at NYU in Bellevue morphed into one of the country's biggest anti-vaccine doctors, a a woman by the name of Dr. Helly Brogan. Uh, I knew her well. We were friends. She was smart. And after she left uh, NYU in Bellevue, uh, like I said, she became one of the country's most outspoken anti-vaccine doctors and really started believing off the wall things that germ theory didn't exist, that HIV doesn't cause AIDS. When COVID struck, uh, she felt that SARS-CoV-2 was not killing people because she doesn't believe any virus kills people. And so I became very fascinated about how smart people can believe strange, incorrect things. And so I dedicated myself to learning everything that I could about the anti-vaccine movement. And in 2018, I wrote a book chapter on the anti-vaccine movement with law professor Dorit Rees. And so when the pandemic came around, I was really prepared for all of their arguments. Uh, But I got two very important things wrong. I thought the anti-vaccine movement would shrink. (laughs) I was wrong about that. And I was also really caught off guard by the fact that a lot of mainstream physicians started to parrot pre-pandemic anti-vaccine talking points. So all of the stuff that I'd heard about measles and the HPV vaccine, these are benign viruses, the vaccines weren't tested, blah, blah, blah. I started hearing from professors at Stanford, Harvard, UCSF, Johns Hopkins, all about COVID and the COVID vaccine. Yeah, we're going to get to, you know, some of the leading institutions and individuals within them and how they were part of this. But, and surprisingly too, of course, but uh, before we do that, um, you know, in the title of your book, We Want Them Infected, uh, it seems to bring in particularly the Great Barrington Declaration, that is, um, just protect the, uh, the vulnerable elderly and don't worry about the rest. Can you kind of restate uh, that declaration and, and whether that's a core part of uh, what you were write, writing about? Yeah, the title of the book is to be taken literally. It comes from a quote by Dr. Paul Alexander, who was an epidemiologist in the Trump administration. And he said in July 4th, 2020, before anyone had been vaccinated, Infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle age with no conditions, etc., have zero to little risk. So we want to use them to develop herd. We want them infected. And this was formalized in the Great Barrington Declaration, which was uh, written by three doctors, our epidemiologists, none of whom cared for COVID patients, uh, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Martin Kuldorf, who at the time was at Harvard, and Sunita Gupta, who is uh, at, at Oxford. And if I could, uh, 
state their plan in the most generous terms, it would be the following, that COVID is much more dangerous for certain people who we can relatively easily identify, uh, older people and people with underlying conditions. It's much more benign for a healthy 10-year-old, for example. And their idea was that you could separate these two groups, the vulnerable and the not vulnerable. And if the not vulnerable people were allowed to catch the virus, develop natural immunity, that would create herd immunity. They said that this would occur in three to six months. And in that time, once herd immunity had been achieved, the vulnerable people who have been in theory sheltering at home or in otherwise safe places could re-enter society. So it was really the best of both worlds because lives would be saved and schools would be open, the economy would be open. It sounded very good on paper, uh, kind of like my idea of stopping crime by locking up all the bad guys. What 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 could go, go wrong? Um, it was a very short document. It, it took about maybe an hour to write, I imagine. Uh, there were some nefarious forces behind it. One of the main uh, instigators of it was a man by the name of Jeffrey Tucker, who sounds like a, a cartoon villain. Um, and he worked at the, uh, I forget, the, is the American Enterprise Research Institute. It was some right-wing think tank. And he is a, a literally pro-child labor. He wrote an article in 2016 called Let the Kids Work which suggested that children drop out of school to work at Walmart and Chick-fil-A. I'm not making that up. And he is overtly pro-child smoking. He feels that children, teenagers should smoke because it's cool and they should then they can quit in their 20s before there are any uh, bad harms from it. And needless to say, uh, the Great Barrington's premises that one infection led to permanent immunity didn't really work out so well. Uh, but they were very influential. They had already met with President Trump in October, in August of 2020. And the day after the Great Barrington Declaration was signed, they were invited to the White House. Uh, this was October 5th, 2020, to meet with Secretary uh, Health, Human Health and Secretary Services, Alex Azar. Um, so, and, and they are advisors to Ron DeSantis. They became mini celebrities over the course of the pandemic. Uh, and it was a very pro-infectious movement. As I said, the title of the book, We Want Them Infected. And they did. Right. Um, in fact, I debated Martin Kaldorf, one of the three principles of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and it was interesting because uh, if you go back to that debate, uh, we brought out, at least I tried to highlight the many flaws in this. You, you've mentioned at least one major flaw, which was to this virus, there's not a long-term immunity built by infections. And it's just as we see with vaccines, the immunity for neutralizing antibody production and protection from infections and severe COVID is limited in duration for, you know, four to six months and uh, at least for the antibodies. And, you know, maybe the T-cell immunity is longer, but that doesn't necessarily kick in and quickly. So that was one major flaw, but there are many others so maybe you could just take that apart further. Like, for example, um, I like your, your uh, analogy to lock up all the bad guys, but, you know, compartmentalizing people is not so easy in, in life. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this is a, was a, is a significant concern of the idea. That, that is, while you indicated there may be some merit uh, if it was, um, you know, if things went... <laughs> as planned, but 
what else was was you know a flaw of that um, that argument or or proposition? Uh, so yeah, this could be a, a ten hour conversation, and and I think importantly, we don't have to speak hypothetically here. Uh, a lot of defenders of the Great Barrington Declaration will say, "Oh, we never tried it," but they promised that uh, herd immunity would arrive in three to six months after lockdowns ended. So we don't have to speak theoretically about what would have happened had we done it. Uh, lockdowns ended a while ago, and we don't have herd immunity. And they were very clear on this. Dr. Kuldorf tweeted in uh, December 2020 uh, that if we use focus protection, the pandemic will be over in three to six months. So what could have gone wrong if about 250 million unvaccinated Americans contracted COVID simultaneously uh, in October and November of 2020, a lot of things. Uh, as we said, they dichotomize people into vulnerable and not vulnerable. But of course, it exists on this. Uh, the only bad outcome they recognized was death. They they felt that either you died or you had the sniffle for a few days and you uh, emerged unscathed. Separating vulnerable people from not vulnerable people is a lot easier than it sounds. And I, I, I think by way of comparison, look at the mRNA vaccine trials. The, you can read their protocols. And the protocols for these trials were three to 400 pages of dense policies and procedures. Uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, if you go to their frequently asked questions section, uh, they made some suggestions which sound great, like Older people should have food delivered at home during times of high transmission. But setting up a national or even statewide food delivery program, that's a lot harder than it sounds. And when asked about that later, Dr. Bhattacharya said they could have used DoorDash, for example. Uh, you know, so it was just very clear that that no serious thought went into this Um because it was really an unactionable thing. It's not as if public health officials had billions of dollars at their disposal, and they weren't mini dictators. They, they couldn't set up home food delivery programs overnight uh, like, like they suggested. And two months after the Great Barrington Declaration was published, vaccines became available, so it became obsolete. Uh, not that vaccines have turned out to be the perfect panacea that we had hoped for, unfortunately, uh, but the idea that young people should continue to try to get natural immunity in favor uh, instead of vaccination uh, became at that point uh, obscene. But they still uh, are anti-vaccine for young people and for children, which I find uh, despicable at this point. Right. I, the data is unequivocal that there's benefit across the board. In fact, uh, you know, just last week uh, in JAMA, uh, two senior people at FDA, Peter Marks and Robert Califf, published the, the graphs of how across all ages there was reduction in mortality with the vaccines. But that gets us to, uh, as you say, now into the vaccine era of COVID. And one of the things that the anti-vax community jumped on was when we moved from Delta to Omicron, where uh, previous to Omicron, there was exceptionally good protection from infections, maybe, you know, 95%. It was rare for people to get, um, to, you know, have spread with the uh, back up-to-date vaccine uh, with the third original uh, strain booster. 
But with Omicron, that fell apart. And if infections were, you know, breakthroughs were exceedingly common, this led to tremendous fodder for the anti-vax, saying the vaccines don't work beyond the false claims that they were, uh, you know, whether they're killing people or gene, um, you know, therapy or, you know, microchips or all these other crazy notions. But can you talk to that? Because if you still protect against deaths, long COVID and hospitalizations, that seems to be pretty important. It's disappointing. And obviously we need ways to prevent infections or otherwise we don't really have an effective exit strategy for the pandemic. But um, this was used and still is used today as a reason that vaccines are uh, are are worthless if they're if if indeed they're not even dangerous. Yeah, um, I, the vaccines when they were initially came out, as we all know, were ninety five percent effective. But the vaccines were brand new, and the virus was brand new. All of this was less than a than a year old. And what what's interesting is, unfortunately, I realized this after I, I wrote my book, but I published an article about this on science based medicine where I've been blogging throughout the pandemic. So if anyone can go there. Um, I wrote an article on October 1st, 2023, called Overhyping Vaccines Wasn't Pro-Vaccine, It Was Pro-Stop Worrying About COVID. So almost all of the doctors that I mentioned in this book uh, vastly overhyped vaccines as soon as they came out, saying they were 100% effective against severe disease, that they completely blocked transmission uh, and, and just really overselling the vaccine, saying uh, that they're going to definitely end the pandemic and mocking anyone who disagreed. And now these doctors are saying, oh, there's a lack of trust in the medical community. We need to rebuild trust uh, without uh, holding a mirror to, to their own statements. Dr. Bhattacharya, for example, uh, participated in a roundtable discussion with Governor Ron DeSantis uh, at the very end of July and on August 1st, 2021, he, uh, Ron DeSantis tweeted out a quote by Dr. Bhattacharya uh, that said, we have protected the vulnerable by vaccinating the older population. We have provided them with enormous protection against severe disease and death. That's why you see, even as the cases have risen in Sweden, blah, 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 we've protected the vulnerable. The number of deaths have not risen proportionally. And this was right when the Delta wave was taking off within. This is the one thing that that was uh, interesting, this pandemic, because you had make people make predictions and within days, their predictions were falsified. And that was uh, a, a tragic thing to see. But that's 20,000 Floridians or some number like that uh, died during the Delta wave in, in Florida. More Floridians died after Dr. Bhattacharya said the vulnerable have been protected than before that. Um, so I think there was a lot of overhyping in the vaccines. And, and, and I get where this came from, right? We as doctors wanted to, you know, we wanted everyone to get the vaccines. We wanted to encourage everyone to get the vaccine. I probably did this myself at some times. Um, but I, I, I do think that that was a problem. But the main, the same doctors who are now saying that the vaccines were, were overhyped and were, were often guilty of that. Right. Well, I mean, I think, as you said, uh, we didn't know the virus was going to evolve with this Omicron event with, you know, well over 35 new mutations in the spike protein, no less other parts of the virus. And then, of course, recently we saw another uh, superimposed Omicron event uh, with this BA286 or JN1 variant. But the problem with this um, of uh, 
the vaccine takedown, uh, and as you well know, because you've been studying this for more than COVID, is that it extended to many other parts of the pandemic, such as masks, such as there's no such thing as long COVID or it's exceptionally rare, could, and, and it bleeds through other areas. So could you comment about that? That is, you know, the, the anti-science, it's not just anti-vax. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I don't talk a lot about long COVID just because I think a lot of other people do a much better job of that. I, I have a hard time grasping the numbers myself. You know, you read one study, oh, it's one in a thousand. You'll read another study, oh, 50% of people have long COVID. My attitude towards long COVID is uh, I don't know exactly how many people have it, but some people are severely affected by it. We have a lot to learn about it. This is a brand new virus. Uh, we are going to we're going to be learning about this the rest of our lives, especially the consequences of repeat infections. Uh, a baby born today is going to be infected what ten times by the time they go away to college. Who knows what are going to be the consequences of that? What does this mean for autoimmunity? So my attitude with long COVID and and and, and the long term consequences are we just have to be very humble about this. And again, all of the doctors who I discuss. Uh, we're very arrogant about this. They, they they were writing in early as as early as March 2020 that that school closures may prevent children from developing herd immunity, and they spoke about infections as being beneficial for children. But you're right as well that uh, these doctors cast doubt on all and any measures that were used to stop the virus: masks, testing, ventilation, uh, lockdowns, and one other. Or objections wasn't that they didn't feel that these were ineffective necessarily. They objected to lockdowns precisely because they stopped the spread of the virus. So you can read some articles from Scott Atlas in April 2020. Uh, he wrote several articles in The Hill, uh, that publication, saying it's time to stop the panic, etc. As if people were, you know, as if panic was a bad reaction to COVID, <laughs> as as morgues were overflowing with dead bodies, panic was the right action. Um, but but he said that that the lockdowns have stopped COVID from spreading and stopped natural immunity from developing, which prevents us from reaching herd immunity. So again, these guys and and the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration objected to lockdowns, saying they just postponed the inevitable which there may be some truth to that. Probably everyone here has been infected by COVID at least one time. But postponing the inevitable, that's what I go to work every day trying to do. <laughs> and, yeah, and you could say a lot for putting off an infection of course. as long as possible. And of course, even trying to put it off forever, because as you know very well, as, as we went on in the pandemic, we learned a lot. Uh, then there was treatments such as Paxlovid and far better treatments that were available for severe COVID. Many, you know, randomized trials to help prevent uh, deaths uh, for people who were uh, of high risk. And the other thing that I guess I can't emphasize enough, and you had a whole chapter in the book, which is about children, kids. They're not so uh, uh, have intrinsically protected. Uh, they they can die. They can be hospitalized, and they have, and there have been many deaths uh, among them from COVID, uh, even those who don't have coexisting conditions. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that the flaw in that 
it's only people of advanced age or immunocompromised and that young people uh, are bulletproof. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case in reviewing all the data throughout the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, just 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 to reemphasize the point that you made, uh, that someone who gets COVID today, especially if they're vaccinated and boosted, is in much better shape than someone who gets COVID, who got COVID in, in March or April 2020. The same way I hope someone who gets COVID in the year 2030 is going to be in better shape than we are today. But yes, back to pediatric COVID, um, the risk to any individual child is very small. So my kids have it. My, my nieces and nephews had it. I wasn't particularly worried. And they, you know, fortunately had very mild disease. But there's 73 million children in the United States. And when you multiply a rare event by 73 million children, the numbers began to, to, to add up. Uh, so, so far, around 2,000 children have died of COVID, uh, which is comparable to what measles used to do. Uh, before in the pre-pandemic days, uh, hundreds of thousands of children have been hospitalized, and um, depending on the variant, about a third have needed ICU care, and five to ten percent have been intubated. Uh, some children have had strokes. Some children have had amputations. Um, so it's not as bad as suicide. For uh, it's not as bad as, as as car deaths. It's not as bad as as bullets. Uh, but we don't have vaccines for those conditions. And the vaccine is not a panacea for children. Some vaccinated children have died, uh, but it's 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 like wearing a seatbelt. You can you can die uh, in a car crash wearing a seatbelt, but your odds are greatly enhanced uh, if you are wearing a seatbelt. But all of these doctors who in 2020 uh, staked their name to the idea that we could get rid of COVID by spreading COVID, be the purposeful infection of children, uh, were unwilling to recognize that the vaccine can help them. And they use many different techniques to minimize the, the, the benefits of the vaccine. Uh, one was to say that it never demonstrated efficacy against hospitalizations and deaths in randomized controlled trials, which is, which is true in as far as it goes because it's, it's, it's very hard to detect rare events in randomized controlled trials unless you do a study of 200 to 300,000 children, as was done with the polio vaccine. And they said they suggested that this should have been done, that we should have enrolled hundreds of thousands of children in these trials, which would have taken, I don't know, five, 10 years. And, and, and so, so, so that's number one. Um, we now have about 30 observational studies, and they all show the same. And, and by the way, there were six randomized controlled trials of the vaccine in children involving about 25,000 children. So that's, they're not small trials. Um, and as I said, there are about 30 trials from around the world showing that the vaccine, observational trials, so observational studies, I should say, showing that the vaccine is not perfect, but it's very good at preventing rare but serious side effects or serious harms of COVID. Uh, as you know, there was just a large study out of Penn uh, a couple days ago uh, showing that the vaccine during the Delta and the Omicron wave uh, were was extremely uh, uh, effective at preventing children from entering the ICU. They also treated rare, mild vaccine side effects as a fate worse than death. And I mean that very literally. Uh, the vaccine in, in young men can cause myocarditis, which is mild in about 90 to 95% of people with it. I'm unaware of a single American who has been known to have died from vaccine myocarditis. And these doctors made 
dozens of YouTube videos and editorials and commentaries all saying, you know, saying what a catastrophe vaccine myocarditis was. How dare you minimize vaccine myocarditis? When they also wrote editorials saying young people should not feel fear death from COVID. And they spoke about death from COVID as milder uh, than, than, than vaccine myocarditis. When talking about death from COVID, they would say, oh, it's less than suicide. More children drown every year. They would just all sorts of, of, of crazy uh, uh, double standards. Right, right. One of the things that's extraordinary in the book, Jonathan, is that you have, it isn't like you're just writing um, text about it. You have all the quotes. You have all the tweets. You have all the articles. Um, I don't know how you did that. I mean, were you keeping uh, an active list of everything that was, be- I mean, I, I liken it to, you know, remember during, uh, in the Trump administration, there was a guy uh, in CNN, uh, I'm yeah. trying to remember his name. Dale something? Or- Dale, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had a fact check every day and, you know, um, and he kept track of everything that was his job full time. But it seemed like you were the only one that has this record of, uh, uh, you know, this er- every statement uh, written that, you know, by the, on the topics that we're discussing. How did you do it? Well, I, I did it through the blog at Science Based Medicine, is that I, I'd been collecting these statements starting in, in May 2021. And uh, it just grew out of that. And so basically the book is sort of a, a reorganization of everything that I've been writing on, on, on that blog. Okay. And I, I will say that it, the fact that I have so many direct quotes has made it impossible for these doctors to refute me. Because if I'm wrong, then they're right. And if they're right, then we'll have herd immunity in three to six months once the lockdowns are lifted. Uh, reinfections are very rare. Um, Variants are nothing to worry about. And so they have to make that case. And what they've tried to do is they've tried to do some revisionist history. So for example, uh, Dr. Jerome Adams, who was Trump's um, Surgeon General, turned out to be a very reasonable guy, um, you know, recently posted on Twitter, I'll still call it that, that that that, that Scott Alice wanted to and he was right, wanted to achieve, wanted to infect people to achieve herd immunity. And Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Vinay Prasad, who's a, a misinformation oncologist at, at UCSF, you know, were aghast. They said, oh, no, he didn't want to purposely infect children. We just wanted schools open. The, the arms of school closures were just so great. So they cast themselves as these very benevolent, you know, we were just looking out for the children. Uh, we never wanted them infected. I never said that. I never thought that. Uh, but all, all you have to do is just read their own words. Um, and, and, and the ones who have responded to me have responded just by childish insults, really just calling me names. Uh, I'm a schmuck. I'm a grifter. I'm a bewist COVID influencer. None of them have uh, ever taken, tried to uh, uh, engage with any of the content. Um, and all that would require them to do is stand up for their own words, which they won't. All right. Now, we touched on it early in our conversation, but what was the, one of the surprising things? On the one hand, there's, you know, anti-vaxxers like, you know, RFK Jr. and people, as you mentioned, the 
person that you uh, knew at NYU who went on. But then there were these surprise people who were at top academic medical centers in the country um, that went um, into kind of misinformation campaigns, whether it was deliberate uh, because it was associated with you know, all sorts of uh, attention or whether it was misinterpretation of data, I don't understand. But can you kind of uh, speculate what's going on there and whether or not the universities involved should have been in somehow uh, engaging with these individuals? Yeah, so it's tough for me to, to understand their, their motives. I, I, I do think that what made them more dangerous than someone like, like Kelly Brogan or RFK Jr., and by the way, these the, the, these two worlds, which I kind of treated as separate, they're beginning to merge with people like Joseph Ladapo, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, so they're not as separate as, as they once were. And Dr. Vinay Prasad has praised RFK Jr., saying he would destroy Dr. Peter Hotez, a hero of vaccines in a debate. I mean, it's crazy, crazy stuff. Um, but I think the guys who I write about were more dangerous in that they mix good advice with bad advice. So uh, they would say very sensible things like, yes, you have to protect grandma. Grandma has to get vaccinated uh, with bad advice that the vaccine is more dangerous than COVID for children, for example. Um, they also are very good, eloquent speakers who can speak in, in scientific jargon and, and use the language of evidence-based medicine. Someone like Kelly Brogan, for example, uh, would say that she uses intuition and higher ways of knowing and crystals and tarot cards. The guys, these guys don't do that. If, if they, we were to discuss our general approach to medicine, it would be no different than, than ours, than anyone's. They would say we try to use science, evidence, data, logic, and reason to reach the best conclusions. So I think that that made them more dangerous. Again, what do I think their motivations were? I, I think a lot of it is uh, some of these guys are natural born contrarians, which means that they just have to be a little bit different, that when everyone else is saying X, they got to say Y. And that served them well uh, in, mm -hmm. in the beginning uh, in most of their careers. And we need people like that in medicine. I would say that uh, the Nobel Prize winner, Karina Kariko, I, I'm probably butchering her name, but the, you know, the Hungarian woman who developed the mRNA vaccines maybe you know fit, fits, fits that profile. And so we need people like that in medicine. Um, I also think they had a hard time admitting error when they drastically underestimated COVID at the start of the pandemic, and all of them did, predicting 10,000 people would die, predicting that it would be less severe than the flu. Um, they had a hard time saying, oops, I was wrong. Some doctors did that. Famously, Dr. Paul Offit, uh, another uh, vaccine hero, said at the beginning of March, I believe, or early February 2020, that he thought uh, the flu was going to be more dangerous than COVID. And when he turned out to be wrong, he said, oops, I was wrong. You might as well make an ass of yourself in front of a million people. But I think these guys couldn't admit error. And once they had committed themselves to a policy, the purposeful mass infection of unvaccinated youth, it was hard to backtrack from that because what are you going to say? Oops, I was wrong. And young people suffered and died because of what I said. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus. So I think it was a lot of that. In terms of what universities should do, I mean, they're at a bind because if they speak out against these people, 
Uh, they are experts at weaponizing their self, their delusions of self persecution. I've been silenced. I've been censored. We need, you know, even though they are, they became, like I said, they became mini celebrities and met with Trump and DeSantis and advised uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin, and they were all over the news. They are huge social media presences. They were everywhere, but where I was in a hospital with COVID patients. So I, I think that if universities speak out. They run the risk of the Streisand effect. It's called, you know, amplifying uh, people inadvertently and allowing them to claim their precious victim status. But if they don't speak out, which they really haven't done, they run the risk of what they're saying is this person carries the uh, the, the the imperature. Am I pronouncing that word <laughs> of our university that that we feel that this person is competent to speak uh, on our behalf, which is which is a problem. Yeah, no, I think you know we've just seen that, of course, with the three institutions that the presidents were brought in about a whole different matter and how they didn't necessarily um, speak out as they could have. Uh, a totally different matter, of course. But this is a real tough one, as you've outlined, as to um, whether uh, leaders of university, like, for example, at Stanford, the faculty did stand up and say, you know, we're not supporting Scott Atlas or this or that. And um, this didn't really happen at other universities that that now we we've touched on at least so the individuals now um, going forward here um, there's a much bigger story than just COVID uh, and it's the anti-science anti-vax movement which is um, you know very dangerous mm -hmm. uh, I think most people who are reasonable reviewing the data would say vaccines are you know just extraordinary uh, for preserving health uh, but we're seeing now this movement has gotten legs, it's gotten funding, it's organized. Um, and you're well familiar with Peter Hotes's book, who gets through some of that, um, uh, you know, substantiates where, where this is, has been uh, with autism and where it's going. So one of the problems is that there hasn't been much in the way of any antidote, any aggressive uh uh, response to basically uh, have the corrections, you know, the the real time, uh, the hall of shame, if you will, of this misinformation, um, to have fact checkers um, to get the story straight and perhaps not governmental sponsored because that's also an area of, of uncertainty is of trust in public health, but some type of agency that could take on a, a corrective um, effort um, the, for the public to know what's fact and what's what's not, what are your thoughts of how we can get out of this mess? Oh, I think I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think skepticism about the COVID vaccines—we're already seeing this—is going to bleed into other vaccines. States are doing everything they can to get rid of what were once considered normal vaccine mandates. Um, so I don't know how we're going to get out of it. Uh, I, and I think any government agency designed to combat misinformation would be become itself uh, as, first of all, we got to be a little bit careful because we don't know who's going to be running that in 2025, right? I mean, Joseph Ladapo might be in charge of the government industry of misinformation, uh, that, you know, that depending on, on who wins election next. So we got to be careful of handing government that sort of um, But I, I do think that more doctors need to do uh, what what I've done, uh, what, what Dr. Peter Hotez has done, what you've done, what Dr. Uh, uh, you know, my, my mentor, Dr. David Gorski, who, who runs science-based medicine, and Steve Novella, 
uh, have done, which is to just to just speak out and to 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 call out doctors when we say when we hear this misinformation. I think a lot of doctors uh, are what we call shruggies, meaning they just sort of shrug it off, like ah, that person's kind of wacky. What are you going to do about it? Um, but I think that we need to not tolerate it. We don't have to give them the victim status by saying, oh, you should be fired, you should be censored, this sort of thing. But just when when these doctors make absurd statements by saying that the flu is more dangerous for children than COVID, we need to say no. Over the past three years, COVID has killed 2,000 children. The flu has killed about 300. 2,000 is bigger than 300. If I told you in 2019, virus A kills 2,000 people, virus B kills 300, you would not have a hard time answering that question. And if you are trying to tell me now that the virus that killed 200 children is worse than the one that killed 2,000, that's absurd and we just shouldn't tolerate that sort of nonsense. And I think that's the attitude that we need to have. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very scary where we're headed and it's ironic because we're seeing vaccine progression to uh, pathogens never seen before, whether it's uh, malaria, obviously we have RSV vaccines and so many more that are coming. In addition, these same vaccines on the platform, whether it be mRNA uh, and nanoparticles or proteins or whatnot, are being directed now to help amp up the immune response to cancer or to create vaccines that could help uh, achieve tolerance to the immune system, an area that you work in, multiple sclerosis, and, yeah. and many other neurologic uh, type 1 diabetes and, and on and on, autoimmune conditions. So if we don't get this right, that if vaccines are trashed, we got some problems going forward. Uh, well, we, should, we, we, should, we shouldn't call those vaccines. That's my suggestion number one. I, I'm, I'm half joking about that. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but yeah, we 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 do have problems going forward, and like I said, I I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and, and look at the COVID booster vaccination rates. I don't know what they are off the top of my head, but they're they're in the garbage. Uh, and or how many nineteen percent in the in all Americans, and we're one of the few countries that has it widely available for all, uh, you know, adults and. Uh, and only 35% in people 70 years and older where there's a spike in hospitalizations right now that's comparable to the other waves of like BA2 and BA5, and it's still rising. So yeah, the booster uptake has been you know very poor, especially in people at high risk. You're absolutely yeah. right. And people, I think people have been influenced by the anti-vaccine movement, even when they don't recognize it. I think it's kind of permeated the culture because people have a very different attitude towards vaccines than they have to almost anything else in their life. I wouldn't say, for example, I don't need to go to the dentist again because I went in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. I wouldn't say I don't need to go to the gym anymore because I went 10 times last year, for example. We recognize that there are certain things that we have to do for our health that have to be done on a frequent basis. Um, and it's too bad that vaccination uh, doesn't fit that bill. I again, I think one reason for this is that the vaccines were overhyped at the start of the pandemic, or at least in 2021. They were pitched as this this panacea, this we're, we're definitely going to solve things. And, and in retrospect, that was a mistake. We needed to proceed with a little bit more humility, uh, just about a brain, because this is everyone's first pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the unpredictability of the virus is 
um, evolution, which was very slow at first, and then of course it accelerated, was unforeseen and and uh, changed the entire profile of um, the uh, protection afforded by vaccines. But I, I guess to wrap it up, Jonathan, I want to thank you for all the hard work you did to put this book together and your efforts to try to stand up for the evidence, the science that supports vaccines and the things that we can do to help uh, preserve human health uh, in a pandemic and beyond. Uh, I mean, in your practice of medicine, it goes well different and beyond um, a pathogen in, in caring for patients with neurologic conditions. Um, I, I also, I guess, would, would say I'm more hopeful that we will have um, oral nasal vaccines that do block infections, yeah. maybe just for a few months per spray or per inhalation, uh, and more durable vaccines that don't only last four to six months if we put our efforts and resources and priorities uh, into it. But I'm also worried that, as you say, the, the, the V word, is it a bad word now to, to many people? So I, I don't know that we've come up with any solution here outside of your idea of not calling them vaccines, but it seems to me we have to be much more um, direct at dealing with um, the, the mis and disinformation F, uh, movements that um, have grown, you know, so profoundly in the last few years, uh, and taking advantage, of course, of the pandemic fatigue, and you know, all the the holes in our current uh, tools. That uh, obviously um, there are no things that are fully protective, whether it's a vaccine or N95 mask, or you know, you name it. Um, any last comments about, um, you know, where, where, well, where are you headed? Are you still going to track this or are you kind of had enough of it or uh, what's your next, uh, chapter in, in your work? Um, I'm going to still continue to write at science-based medicine on, on this theme, um, because I think that it's important as doctors that we regulate our, our own profession and that we, we hold our public communications to, to high standards and, I include myself in that. So in my book, I include uh, several dozen, you know, several really stupid things that I said, and that might be the the subject of a future article. Dumb things I said uh, because I did say some dumb things. So I think we have to to hold ourselves to 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 a high standard uh, when communicating with the public in in, in the pandemic. So um, that's what I'm going to continue to do. I'm going to continue to do what I always do at Bellevue, psych and and NYU, uh, treat MS patients and round on the the the, uh, the inpatient service at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, I want to thank you. And Bellevue is a tough place to work. I, I know it well, uh, and. That's in itself says a lot about you. You're a person who I had not met before, only having read your work. But you're not. I don't detect, uh, you know, one scintilla of hubris. Uh, you're you come across as a you know a genuine um, person uh, who is really interested in facts and evidence. I want to thank you for all of your work and look forward to future conversation. Oh, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. And I appreciate all you've done uh, on your Twitter feed. Whenever there's a new story, I get it from you first. And, and, and so I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Jonathan.